Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're talking about Summer of the Swans by Betsy Byers, which was the 1971 Newberry Medal Honor and the culmination of our season four. Um, it was also illustrated by Ted Kokonis. What are we drinking today, Marcy? Today we are drinking uh, a 6 a.m. sunrise, which we will talk about in a little bit. But before that, we'll talk about the book, and Jenny has uh, a synopsis. I do. Um, Of course, we'll talk through it ourselves, but um, this is from Publishers Weekly. It was from 1970. Um, All summer, Sarah Godfrey has fretted over herself, her impossible body, her terrible new haircut. One moment she's elated, the next she's in tears, and she can't figure out why. Maybe her wildly changing moods are tied to the sudden and unaccountable appearance of the swans, which hold the rapt attention of Charlie, Sarah's mentally handicapped brother who she loves far more than herself these days. In fact, it will be the sudden disappearance of Charlie that will compel Sarah to abandon her own small, annoying miseries and lose herself in searching for him. That's a good synopsis. Yeah, it is a good synopsis. Did you like the book? I did like the book. I liked it more than I thought I would. I was very hesitant. I was very worried going to this. I think I mentioned it to you. Yeah, it has, for me, it has like a rough start. It has, it's almost like a little bit too self-conscious of a writing style just at the beginning. And also, um, there's just like a moment where she's pretending. And I think that the author is trying to sort of convey that she's got a rich mental life or whatever, and she's showing off for her sister and she's portraying different characters. And one of them is like the the inscrutable Hindu. And I'm like, oh, where is this book going? Well, and and I was <laughs> I was really a little bit shocked by that because my hesitation was surrounding Charlie. It's been decades since I'd read this book mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure how his condition was handled or what his condition was. I'd forgotten exactly what it was. And I was really, really worried there was going to be some very um, outdated language surrounding that. And I was pleasantly surprised. That's true. Actually, it was handled very well throughout the book. Um, Because the inscrutable Hindu, that was the part that I actually, that felt like a little bit like a snake jumping out (laughs) because I didn't expect it. Um, I wouldn't call it a racism. I would call it exoticism. And it happens a couple other times in the book too. And I think it's very much of that time. I think it's just the way people talked then. It was. It's still, um, I think reading it now, it's very problematic. It's upsetting. And I think if you're reading this with a kid, you need to have those conversations about not reducing whole populations of people to a cl- like a piece of clothing you think they wear and yeah. attributing... Um, uh, characteristics to certain people, like people from certain countries, like it, you know, so it doesn't, to me, it doesn't read as racism. It's outdated and it's, it's exoticizing. Um, but again, so I feel like, like those are different things. So, but this seems like an, one of those books, like we've talked about this before, where some books are not, they don't have enough merit to, to make it worthwhile reading the book with children and having those conversations. But this is one of those books where I think that there's enough to it that is definitely worth reading as long as you do have those conversations. Well, to me, it's not a showstopper. Mm-hmm. Um, like Sign of the Beaver, that's a showstopper for me. Like I'm 
not planning on reading that with my kid. But um, I think that that's something that everyone has to decide for themselves. Um, so for me, it's not a showstopper. Like I can see reading this with my kid and just explaining that there was a, there is, no, there are some white people who think people from other countries, particularly Asian countries are exotic and inscrutable and mysterious just by the fact that they come from those other countries and look different. Yeah. Um, so I think that's an, an, an easier explanation or an easier conversation to have with a smaller, a smaller kid mm -hmm. than explaining how, you know, a whole American Indian tribe is actually mis. Yeah. That was a whole different thing. <laughs> mischaracterized and not really, um, researched very well. Well, and happily so. in this book is just one sentence. So it's not as big it does. Of a deal. It comes up, it comes up a little bit past the, like in, in the, like it comes up another time. Mm. Um, but again, it's not something that's dwelled on. Um, so to me, it's something that's a, a good stepping stone to a conversation. Yeah. Which I think is important. Yeah. Um, but, but, but the brother, the brother's mm -hmm. condition is handled fairly well. Although I think what, what his condition is, is not specifically stated. Like he, he was sick two times in a row when he was three. Right, and he went from being a, a an active three year old to staying in bed for several years, apparently just sort of vacant. But but the way it's described that she calls it brain damage, but it comes across as being autistic now. So I'm not sure what the condition actually is, or if she made it up. Um, but I think that that maybe like if if you were updating this book which obviously you can't do but if you were updating this book like you would clean up some of the the other language that we just talked about but but this i think could be a little bit um better dealt with i'm not sure i'm i'm not sure cuz you you can't just like get autism from being sick. no i know that's you know, my point like yeah. so and that's what i was worried about i was worried that he was going to be autistic and it was going to be like that babysitter club book yeah. where Christy babysits for a child with autism and she's like a genius musician <laughs> and it's really not well done. I think at that point um, they were being ghostwritten. So I feel very comfortable right. criticizing that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was good that there were explanations for what had happened to him, but maybe with not having the parents around, mm -hmm. the actual condition was maybe lost a bit, or Aunt Willie had decided it wasn't time for the kids to really know. Right. I think I was just afraid of there being like, there is derogatory language about Charlie, but it's not from his sister. And well, I was really concerned that his sister was going to, because I couldn't remember, right. his sister was going to really like call him names or treat him badly. And instead, she defends him in a, and, in a, in a very positive way. And that's, well, um, that's when I actually started to like that character. I didn't like Sarah until I found out that she like hit a kid. Um, and got a kid in trouble that, that had been calling Charlie names. Right. Um, violence is not a good, 
always a good option. But I was like, Sarah, you are defending your brother. That's awesome. I like you. You're a mess right now because you're you're, <laughs> you're like 12. early teens, but I like you. Now. I guess what I mean too, in by saying in a very positive way, is her unequivocal like support of her brother. Like it doesn't matter. Like she will defend him against anybody who does anything to him. Like she's got his back no matter what, which <laughs> is great because a lot of these. Like sometimes you read books where there's a, a sibling who's got an illness or an injury or some kind of issue and the sibling supports them, but in a sort of half resentful, I guess I have to deal with this way. But she's like, no, I love my brother, like back off. And I think that's actually really progressive from that time because yeah. even well into, I think even now there are, <laughs> there are books that um, shall be named at this point um, where a, a a character's illness or possible illness um, is not handled very nicely. No. Um, so I, yeah, I was really excited to see that part. Um, so as we established, Sarah is kind of a mess right now. We got that in the synopsis. Sarah's a mess. She doesn't know what she's doing with herself. She is very um, kind and very um, quick to defend her brother. And she idolizes her sister who Wanda, who is dating a boy that's a little bit older than her that has a motorcycle <laughs> and is a jerk. Yeah, he's a jerk. Well, he's not so much a jerk as maybe like pretentious and. Douchey. Well, and he's a teenage boy with yeah. a motorcycle, and um, there's a really funny scene at the beginning where Aunt Willie, who's the the kid's guardian, won't let Wanda get on the motorcycle with her boyfriend, and. Um, then Aunt Willie is goaded into getting on the motorcycle for a ride. And that was too old to do it. That was very (laughs) cute. That was really, really cute. Um, And so Wanda ends up getting to go see the swans um, on the back of the motorcycle. Um, So, yeah, so we are introduced to this family. We find out that the parents are no longer with us. Um, One way or another. Yeah. And um, Wanda and her boyfriend go on a motorcycle to the swans. And then, um, Sarah and Charlie walk down to see the swans. And Charlie is absolutely captivated by the swans. Yeah, he loves them, and he doesn't want to leave, and he pitches a fit when he has to leave. Um, That's actually the only time I think I remember Sarah being audibly frustrated with him. She has to sort of drag him back, and she's like, oh, I knew it would happen. But it's more a fact that like she knew that he would love them so much that he would have to be like hauled back and not a resentment of him as a person, which was nice. But still, it sounds it sounds it, it was a little too reminiscent of having to drag toddlers back from something that they enjoy. <laughs> I was like, oh, I feel your pain, like the physical muscular pain of having to haul back a protesting person. Yeah, yeah, that did hit close to home. <laughs> um. And so, uh, Sarah, there's, there's a period of time, Sarah, I guess it's, I mean, this all takes place in like one day. Yeah. So I was just kind of trolling around the internet for reviews. I wanted to see how this book was received and I I didn't really see too many contemporary reviews, contemporary reviews that were not positive, but all the modern ones now are kind of grumpy at it. Um, and a lot of the complaints had to do with the fact that all the action happens over two days when the title is Summer of the Swans. So you kind of think it's happening over the course of a summer. 
But for me, it totally makes sense. I mean, the, the story is about her summer, even though the focus is these two days. Um, and if you see the swans as a metaphor for the people in the book, then the summer of the swans is totally makes sense, even though the swans are only there for those couple of days. Yeah, I mean, it's set around the time the swans are there. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. I don't know what's wrong with those people on the internet, <laughs> but I think that's a valid question in most cases. There are, there are <laughs> a lot of one-star reviews of this book. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I can't lie and say that it's possible that my deep love for Betsy Byers has well, colored sure. <laughs> my rereading re of this. Um, I think that she... I think she took a lot of risks during the time that she wrote um, very heavily in the 70s and 80s. A lot of children without parents, a lot of children facing really hard things. Um, and unlike Judy Bloom, where it was kids facing hard things and it was mostly about growing up and about their bodies changing and mm -hmm. about maybe sex, this was a lot more about em just emotional things in a lot of ways. Um, and I... I just and and for so for it to be so plainly about girl emotions too, mm -hmm. and to be taken so seriously, I'm I really liked this book a lot. I was I, like I said, I was surprised, but I really liked it a lot as an adult. It, I'm not gonna say it was my favorite book ever. Like there are certain Newbery books that I will never not have on my shelves, and I read them over and over again. And I, I might read this again. I'm not against it, but it, I'm not. It wasn't so compelling that I couldn't put it down, but it was, it was pretty readable. I did like it. It wasn't, it wasn't my favorite book that we've read, but I did like it. And I love Betsy Byers just because I feel like she's led what I consider to be pretty much an ideal life. <laughs> like, like she had like this amazing career and an amazing family. You know, she had a great husband and four kids. And she actually, um, two of her daughters are writers and she like collaborates with them on books, which is amazing. And she and her husband are both um, aviators. So their house is actually like on an airstrip and they built it so that the ground floor is an airplane hangar so that they could fly their planes. So they have this house, right? On an airstrip, the ground floor is an airplane hangar. The top floor is her writing studio and her family is like perfect. It's amazing. For me, like Betsy Byers was one of the first writers that I read that had latchkey children, had divorced kids. I know that there are some things in Trouble River that a lot of, that are problematic now. Um, but I also remember that being one of the first times I had read a story of an older woman being incredibly brave. So for me, I took seeds, I took seeds out of those books that were just so fundamental to who I am as a reader and who I am as a person even today. Like it was so important to see really intelligent kids in situations they hadn't chosen and see them navigate those situations very adeptly. I was impressed reading this book to often in books like this, I've noticed that the kids or the siblings give each other really terrible advice, you know, or, or their peer groups give them just awful advice. And it was, there were intelligent kids in this book. Like the older sister gave her really good practical advice, even really early on in the book where it doesn't really matter to the plot. And I was like, that's, 
like even just reading it, I was like, that's great advice. Like she should take that. <laughs> and then later on when she's hunting for her brother with this kid who is sort of her mortal enemy turned love interest. Um, he, he doesn't like encourage her to hair off on some wild adventure. Like he's like, yeah, let's go this way. I feel like I found his shoe. You know, I can, we can find him. Like, mm-hmm. Let's report back. Let's send somebody back to tell them where we're going. And, you know, it's like a sensible advice. <laughs> and it works. Yeah. With Charlie missing, Sarah becomes a little more undone. I mean, she's already pretty undone mm-hmm. by puberty. Um, but she becomes a little more undone. But her first instinct is action, which mm-hmm. I appreciate and really like. Um, and, yeah, she teams up with Joe Melby, who she erroneously thought stole Charlie's watch. And then she finds out through this, like the whole backstory that he was actually returning it to him, to Charlie, um, as a good deed. Um, so we see her make another friend. We see her, her best friend, who's another girl, um, throughout the story too. We get to see her make a new friend. We get to see her gain some confidence. She finds Charlie. Like, I understand, I guess, that it says the summer of the swans, but I remember there being pivotal moments that may have lasted half an hour or may have lasted three days, you know, in my childhood that that's all I remember from that time period or that summer or Mm -hmm. that Christmas or, you know, so I don't think it's, I don't think there's a problem. I don't. I think those people need to stuff it in their, their (laughs) pie holes. (laughs) I think when you're being too precious about definitions like that, it, it takes away from the overall picture of the book because I think that overall this book is good. Like mm-hmm. it's just, I don't, I don't understand how anybody could have an issue with this having won the Newbery. Like it covers a lot of territory, but also it covers just a small moment at the same time, and that's a hard thing to accomplish well. And I think that Newberries have always that is one of the categories that Newbery awards. Mm-hmm. are the coming-of-age glimpses. Um, and this is a really good one. This is a really, really good one. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know if I would have picked it up to read it if it were not a Newbery. Like, the premise is, like, okay to me. But the writing is is very well done. And it's, it's, it's a quick read. But it we were recently talking with Kevin Henkes, and he was talking about emotion books, rather than like, ooh, action, thriller, mystery, murder kind of books. Like an, this to me is an emotion book. And it's just, it's very well done. It's it's for a different age group, but it's, I don't know, it really captures like the inner turmoil and the outer simplicity of being 12 in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it comes at it from, what am I trying to say? It's sort of a multifaceted look at one person. Like it comes at it from the person who's 12, Right. But also the younger brother and the older sister and the aunt who's in charge of them. So you kind of get like a better picture of the person than the person might have themselves, which is awesome. I did like that the main character had a couple like insights. Um, like, I remember being 12 and 13, and you, like, vacillated wildly between being really childish and being very nearly grown up at the same time. And I liked that even though she's just, like, totally flipping out about her, 
about her brother and like being invited to a party by a boy and like she tries to dye her shoes and they turn her feet blue like <laughs> all of these like sort of childish things but then she has a couple of moments of real clarity that are not unbelievable because they're not too grown up but the metaphors are nice um she talks about in my book this is page 140 but she says she's she's talking to her dad on the phone at the end of the book and she says she suddenly saw life as a series of huge uneven steps and she saw herself on the steps standing motionless in her prison shirt and had just taken an enormous step up out of the shadows and she was standing waiting and there were other steps in front of her so that she could go as high as the sky and she saw charlie on a flight of small difficult steps and her father down at the bottom of some steps just sitting and not trying to go further and for me like that is like the moment of clarity for the whole book and i think that is the nicest way of looking at her brother to say that she sees that he has a set of small difficult steps like that that sentence right there shows me that she really understands her brother well, she sees him in a, as an actual person. Well, yeah, and she sees the challenges that he has and that he's not limited. He's just doing his best. But I don't know, like that kind of a, a understanding, I thought, made the character much more interesting. I I agree. Um, do you want to talk about the illustrations? Yes. That's what I was <laughs> like. Do you have anything else about the book, like the writing? Ted Kokonis's art is absolutely gorgeous. And I'm actually holding Marcy's copy right now. I had a uh, a scholastic paperback with, quite frankly, two children who look constipated <laughs> and a goose, uh, well, a, goose. A, a swan that looks like it had some plastic surgery. It's not good. It's There's also a strange one. little, I don't know if that's a turtle or a weird rock. I'm... You know, my apologies um, to uh, whoever did this. I'm sure that you, you know, I'm sure you have some really great work, but um, this is not appealing to me. Now, the original artwork, the original cover is gorgeous. I mean, it's just this, beautiful. Look at the scary art on this one. I've got a, I've got a puffin permabound edition. And why they felt the need to double up on the kids on the cover. There's four kids on the cover, but only two kids being portrayed. And they both look either ill or barely conscious. Sarah is looking at Charlie up in the top pairing of them like he pooped on her. She's got kind of an Anne Frank look to her. It is. She does have a, like, she's drawn. She does look like Anne Frank in this. It's I'm, weird. And then he looks like Elliot from E.T. Yes. I and think that. I think he, he that he was used as a model. But the second girl on the cover, who's clearly also her, looks nothing like the first girl. No. But that still looks like Elliot. So it's the bowl cut. It's he used uh he used <laughs> Elliot as the model. Like look at that. I don't and those swans are not only very tiny, but like very poor. It seems to be one swan with two heads. Yeah. I don't, so, okay. So, so the, all, the all, real cover. <laughs> oh, the real cover is so beautiful. And thankfully, whoever did the later editions used the interior illustrations on all the later editions, as far as we can see. In all our editions, they did. And they are beautiful too. But the cover of the, it's a wraparound cover, and it has just Sarah and Charlie sitting together with a superimposed 
watercolor of swans and it is we'll post it to instagram and our other social media um but it's beautiful it's really beautiful it's simple and it looks like what i one of the things i love most about it is that it's got a lot of swirls around the swans and particularly around where you get to the two children Mm -hmm. it looks almost like pebbles and it's got the reflection if you can see like the reflection is also part of the watercolor of the children it's the thing is that in the other in the other illustrations, like she looks sad. Like it looks like she is sitting there lamenting the fact that Charlie has mental issues of some kind. In this cover, she just looks like sympathetic. I don't know. It's I think she looks loving. I think she you know, it it's like he's leaning on her and she's taking care of him. She's sheltering him at a bit. And I I think that's a really great um, introduction to the characters. I also like that they have her orange shoes on the cover. Oh, you're right. Um, because I've got to tell you, Sarah, you wear those orange shoes. <laughs> Don't let anyone um, cover your light under a was under a bushel. Yeah, I wear was, those damn orange shoes I and walk that, around. I felt that way. She's very obsessed with not only the shoes that she's wearing, but also her foot size, her shoe size. I'm like, come on now. I wear a size 11 and. Let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and then the interior illustrations are beautiful as well. There is Not all of them are as layered because they don't have the color. Mm-hmm. They um, look more like uh, line drawings or sketches almost. But they a lot of times they'll span two pages mm-hmm. across the top, and then they won't be traditionally framed in, a, in blocks. Yeah, and the shading has, has interesting textures within it and patterns, which is very... Uh, just very Ted Kokonis from what I've seen. And then the when you first see the first drawings of the swans, it's gorgeous. It's a it's a double page spread with no words. You know what this is the one that I first saw that really struck me. There's a one of the two of them sitting on their front porch and it is very simple, but um it really conveys a lot. Their facial expressions and uh, their postures. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this his his drawings are absolutely gorgeous. I'll tell you what, the cover art of this is something that I would, if you saw it in a gallery, like you would just want it to have on your wall. I'm looking at the back of the book, and there's a list of other Betsy Byers books, and um, I'm just remembering like the 18th Emergency, the TV kid, the 2,000 pound goldfish, the Civil War. These were all just so special to me as a kid. I actually haven't read many of them. And when I was researching her, I was surprised to realize that she has had so many major awards for books that I've never read. Like um, she won the Edgar Award in 1991, she won the National Book Award in 1980. Um, and I have not read those books. What were the books? Uh, the Edgar Award was for Wanted Mud Blossom, and in 1980, the National Book Award was for The Night Swimmers. So now I need to go read those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she I has a huge catalog of books. She does. And I think another thing that I always responded to and I still respond to is that I think in her books, a lot of times the characters are sad or things happen that make them sad. And she, she always writes them. She always writes those characters in those situations as it's okay to be sad. Yeah. She doesn't back off from it. 
but she lets them sit with it, which I think is amazing to just let your characters sit with it and not try to fix it as an author or try to have them kind of buck up and pull their, pull their, you know, I don't know, pull themselves up real fast. Yeah. Right? Well, like the shoes, like she's, so in the book, she's obsessed with these orange shoes that she has, which first she loves and then she hates and she wants to change them. Obviously a metaphor for her like adolescent personality, but instead of when she tries to dye them, she wants to dye them baby blue. And instead of being like, oh, it works great. Now I love my new shoes, which is sort of your standard here. Let's fix it. Yay. It's done. Like they turn an ugly color. (laughs) <laughs> and they and they dye her feet blue, and at the end, like she's invited to a party with a boy, and that's exciting for her. But like instead of being like, oh yeah, and then the shoes were great, she's like, well, my feet are blue. Let's get ready for the party. <laughs> so we have Rita Lakes with uh, with Summer of the Swans. Yeah. So mine are not super similar but they just have a little bit of the same tone and they're all Madeline Langle. <laughs> um I just feel like Madeline Langle writes books that whether it's Meet the Austins which is the first thing that jumped to mind or A Wrinkle in Time they have older sisters dealing with younger brothers in a nice way where they're protective and supportive. Um and of course Charles Wallace in A Wrinkle of Time has in you know, a wrinkle in time has issues of his own, so that has something to do with it. Um, sorry, Rob and Meet the Austins does not, but um, Vicky Austin still has to take care of him, and he does go missing at one point. So that's kind of where that similarity jumped out. But I think just the the time period, like early seventies, older brother. Or, older sister who's dealing with adolescence, younger brother who needs protecting, that kind of a tone. If you liked that part of the story, then those would be good good read-alikes. It's funny that before we were recorded this episode, we actually had to prepare for a, an interview with Kevin Hankus. And so to me, Olive's Ocean is a really mm. good read-alike. You have a young girl. Um, it's set during the summer. Um, she has a big emotional, uh, journey. Um, and in, in Olive's ocean, in the case of Olive's ocean, it is a whole summer and it's about Martha trying to figure out how to pay tribute to an acquaintance that it's passed, another child that's passed while also dealing with becoming a teenager and what that means. Um, so to me that, that seemed very linked um, and then Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson, uh, mm-hmm. mainly for the parts of Brown Girl Dreaming where the narrator is very much focused on how she's growing and she the things she doesn't understand about it. And also the family ties, the family connections. Um, they're just there's something about about them that ring in each other. Our drink is the 6 a.m. sunrise. Marcy, do you like it? Um, no. It's it's not. Hang on a second. I think it tastes like birthday cakes that's been in the trash. <laughs> How do you know? Again, <laughs> I, 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 keep, I keep having to say this. 
Sometimes I taste things that smell the way, like that taste the way I think, well, that <laughs> smell the way I think something might taste, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it was vinyl a couple episodes back. Like you've smelled garbage, right? Sadly, yes. And But like you've eaten frosting. Yeah. So like, I just feel like it's like. Do both those things at the same time and you've got this drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like. Okay. So it is. It, the the background of this drink is that we could not find any cocktail that had swan in the name that wasn't based on black swan and made out of like black, black vodka or some sort of dairy product, which neither of us can abide. So short of procuring something exotic from a distillery actually in West Virginia where the book is set, we looked up a list of most popular foods and drinks uh, in West Virginia, and the only drink besides milk on the list was uh, Mountain Dew. So we looked for a cocktail that was uh, made out of Mountain Dew, which may have been an error. <laughs> um, it's, it lends a sweetness and a fizziness, but... Um, it is overly sweet, uh, and it is an unnatural color. There's a there's a bad aftertaste. That's where the garbage part comes in for me. Okay, but at least it's not. It doesn't like kick you in the teeth, which is surprising considering the alcohol base is gin. Yeah, so it's Mountain Dew, gin, and grenadine. It was kind of like a. And I picked the six a.m. sunrise because they were up really early trying to find Charlie. Because mm-hmm. there are other Mountain Dew drinks, but one they were kind of maybe a little evocative compared to like na- evocatively named mm-hmm. um, in the face of a children's book. Um, and then two, this one was simple to throw together. Well, and they were up early, like you said, in the mountains. And uh, it, it also seemed appropriate because she's a kid and kids drink Mountain Dew. So that's fine. Um, I wouldn't make it again. No, I never want to drink this again. <laughs> but again, it's not, I mean, it's too sweet and it's not, actively good but it's not <gasps> what? it also tastes like dimatap it does taste like dimatap no triaminic it tastes like triaminic you're right the orange <laughs> triaminic yes yes okay so we're drinking some cough syrup some homemade <laughs> cough syrup it's almost the same color it is but it has that weird kick at the end that tastes like garbage so it could be it could be trimetic that's been in the garbage. Yeah. But like the too sweet, unnatural color. Yes. Mm-hmm. Trimetic. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the last episode of season four of the Newberry Tart Podcast. Please rate and review us on wherever platform you are listening. It helps other people find us and it helps us keep the podcast going. Please go on our website, newberrytart.com and sign up for our newsletter to find out all of the upcoming episodes so you can sip and drink along. So thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.